Hello, and welcome to Meta Perspective, the show exploring how to think, act, and be in a complex and uncertain world. This is episode number eight. In the previous episode, we explored the role of culture and technology and its impacts upon us. One of the central themes of this podcast is how we, as individuals or agents, are engaging and interacting with our environment or arena. The key takeaway from the last episode is that the influx of technology, when coupled with how we interact culturally with each other, is warping our sense of who we are and how we relate to the world around us. And it's creating a gap between us and our ability to meaningfully participate in the world we inhabit. And that distance or gap we refer to as the decoupling between the agent and the arena. This decoupling is being driven by a cultural network that inundates us with the new and obscures from us what is best, how we can live our lives well. And it's making us passive spectators of our lives instead of active participants. So the question is, how do we go from being these passive spectators to active participants in our life stories? Well, to get there in this episode, we're going to take a step back and look at what underpins our understanding of the self, what it means to be an individual in relation to ourselves, each other, and the world around us, by examining the unfolding story of our journey to becoming conscious moral agents. And we're going to do that by delving into the history, as well as the foundational beliefs and axioms of Western civilization looking at why we've come to hold a sense of individuality as sacred and how we have to reconcile that idea with our seemingly inherent capacity to inflict harm and carry out evil. By going here, we're taking a first step in exploring how we can effectively participate in this world and close the distance between us as individuals and the environment we're living in so that we can overcome this feeling of alienation and disconnectedness and that feeling of being out of touch with reality that is an existential problem of our age. With that being said, let's jump into the episode and I'll catch you on the other side. I think some of the things that were interesting about the last episode that are worth just flagging is we were exploring this idea of what it means to be a node on the cultural network and actually what is a cultural network. We were making this comparison or this metaphor about us as individuals being nodes on a network. In technological terms, a node is something that can send, receive and store or even create information. So we were looking at how we participate in this cultural network and the cultural network's effect on us. And one of the things that I found particularly interesting was this exploration into how technology has accelerated this feeling of us as agents feeling decoupled from our arena. And then we were exploring a little bit about what this cultural network really reveals to us and how it's actually showing us this decoupling effect and where we got to and something that shone out to me after listening back to the show was a question that we raised at the end which was how do we actually participate in the cultural network and more specifically how do we make ourselves more agentic 
so that when we participate in the arena, we are contributing to the cultural network in a way that edifies it and doesn't corrupt it. That was the question that came up last time round, And I've been sitting with that question because I think there's something really important to that. And I don't know exactly where that question is going to lead us, but it really stuck out to me. And I was thinking, where do we even start to tackle that question? Where I've been getting to in my head is before we can even start to figure out how to make ourselves feel more agentic, to have more self-efficacy, to feel like we can participate fully in the arena, in this cultural network, we should probably take some time figuring out what does it mean to be an agent? Or in other words, what does it mean to be an individual? How do we relate to ourselves, each other and the world around us as individuals? If we can explore that, that should give us a foundation from which we can look at how we participate in the cultural network. And as we mentioned on previous episodes, figuring out how to strengthen the node on the network ultimately strengthens the network, which is why this is such an important question to ask ourselves. But to get to a place where we can do that, we actually need to explore and understand the roots of the agent or the roots of the individual self before we can dive into what individuality or agency means in a modern and also in a future context. So I was thinking to do this and to have this conversation this time round, we could explore the roots of the individual through this idea of the sanctity of the individual. Sanctity meaning the sacredness or the ultimate importance of the individual and looking at where does this idea come from and why does the sanctity of the individual matter? I think for a lot of us, just thinking about the importance of the individual, it's kind of self-evident. This idea of individuality and the importance of that doesn't really need to be demonstrated or explained. Or does it? That's the thing that I've been thinking about. Is it really self-evident? That's the big question. And I know in the past we explored in our Legacy Mindsets episode how, how we think and act today has been greatly influenced and shaped by ideas of the past that still reverberate in our arena today. We were looking at how industrialization has led to ways that we sometimes mistake the part for the whole, ways that our businesses are structured, how education today is structured. And this almost feels to me like another exploration into a legacy mindset that really influences us. And I think the whole journey that we've been on so far in meta perspective has been a journey to understand what's going on in the world today tends to lead us to look deeper into the foundations of our society. So to get to where we need to get to, we need to look at what underpins our understanding of the self. But before we dive into the roots, I actually wanted to ask you, Andy, to kick us off. How do you think the sanctity of the individual is manifest today in ways that we might not even be aware of? That's a really good question, actually, because if we're going to explore the roots of how we got here, where have we arrived now? What is it that we have now that we see as important to be cherished and built upon? And as you say, in a minute, we could probably explore, well, where did these ideas come from? But let's start where we are now. And I think in one way, it's it's almost like the water we're swimming in. We live in a world where we take so much for granted that wasn't always the case. We wake up in the morning, we go out in the streets, we maybe go to work or go to visit friends. And we don't have a feeling that we're going to be imminently attacked or we're under pressure to conform to some dictate of a totalitarian nature or else we're going to be whisked off the street and thrown in prison. There are many cultural and political systems that have evolved and some may even exist today where the basic freedoms we take for granted don't exist. We do feel when we walk out of the door into the arena that we've created that it affords us, respects us, sees us as individuals. We're expected to have rights and to make choices And those around us, those who don't even know us, 
will treat us with some sense of respect and some sense of dignity. So the idea of the individual and the self as being the most important element of a modern society is very much grounded in our experience of every day and is essentially the foundation of Western society. And we're really talking about Western society here. And what that means is that the individual is assumed that we can make rational decisions in our own self-interest. And as we've explored in some of our other episodes, there is some limit to that rationality, but it's assumed that we have some kind of agency, we can make some choices, the choices are ours to make, that we are to some degree rational, we're aware of the world we're in and of others, and we can make choices. And those choices enable us to essentially go out and make our own lives. There is very much a sense that our own life is ours to make. And the culture that we find ourselves in very much drives a sense that we can realise our own potential in a society that respects us all as individuals who contribute to our individual and our collective lives as free agents. Now, this isn't always or has been the case, but it does bring with it some really interesting and important facets that, again, I think we take for granted, but are absolutely rooted in the idea of each individual, if you like, using your language, there's something sacred in the existence of the individual as the baseline for the creation of a society. We take for granted the idea of democracy, why we all are able to contribute to the democratic will of the country that we find ourselves in, some limitations on terrorists and what have you. But in general, the idea of one person, one vote is well established. We don't even question that to a degree. So the prime minister or the president and a beggar on the street, each of their votes counts equally in the idea of how we vote for and make choices collectively for the ideas we wish to see in society and the political parties we wish to bring to power to help govern us. So this idea of one person, one vote is rooted on the idea that each of us have to some degree an equality and a sacredness at the level of the individual, irrespective of how much money or power we have. There is the ability for corruption to twist the process of democracy itself, but the idea of one person, one vote is very much rooted as a baseline. Another interesting idea is the fact that we're all equal under the eye of the law. In our current society, we all have equal rights and equal responsibilities under the law. So again, enshrined in the very basis of our current society is the idea that there is a level of equality that we are all subject to and can help govern how we make decisions and how we judge infringements of law. So the current water that we swim in I think is riven with these deep ideas that there is something sacred in the individual as the basic foundational block of how we build our society and that the instruments of society, how we organize, how we make decisions, how we think about law, all have us as equal in the eyes of whether it's voting or law. So there's a deep sense in which the sacredness and the sanctity of the individual is ingrained in our everyday life and something we take for granted in the world that we see around us at the moment. This, in some sense, is very unique 
in the history of the world to have arrived at this point. It makes possible the idea of the modern liberal democracy that we've got so used to, but it is by no means a state of affairs that could be guaranteed to have happened, but something that we're now living in an age where we can appreciate and take advantage of. So I'll stop there, but I think there's something really interesting in the world that we've got now that we value hugely, we take for granted, but actually comes from a deep set of underlying assumptions about the sanctity of the individual that's ingrained and embedded in the world we see around us. It sounds to me almost just so obvious. This is why I was saying earlier about it being self-evident that each individual has intrinsic value. And we look at ourselves, but also the people that we are around as being autonomous, conscious agents. We respect the value and dignity of each person. If you've been brought up in that world, it seems so self-evident that that must have almost always been the case. But I guess when we dive into the roots of this whole thing, we're going to see that that wasn't always the case. I really like this analogy of the water that we're swimming in. This idea that if you were a fish, for example, and you're just swimming around, you're not going to notice the water that you're in. It feels like this idea has become so foundational to how we see the world and how we think and how we act and behave. That's actually really difficult to separate that idea of the intrinsic worth of a human being from our culture and from the history of the world. It almost seems like it's always been that way. Well, it hasn't. We should explore that. But I agree with you that if you think about the way that our social conversations, our outrages, what we talk about, chat about, get upset about, even our politics, a lot of the ideas that we are contesting at the moment are usually around the ideas in which the sanctity of the individual has not been respected, although there's still more work to be done. So marginalised groups, maybe some of the roots that underlie the culture wars at the moment that we see around us, have as their basis a sense that some individuals and the sanctity of certain individuals or groups of individuals are not being honoured. So the call to arms to have these debates, to contest, to seek to improve, bring more social justice to the world, underpinning that is the sense that some individuals and groups or the sacredness of the individual within those groups has not been fully recognized and there's still more work to be done to bring to life the realization of that idea of universal equality, the dignity and respect that all of us can claim in the modern world. So it's a super important foundational idea that we're talking about here, which is why I'm so glad we're exploring it in in some detail. I guess what you're alluding to is there's a sense that this idea of the sanctity of the individual is almost like a promise that we are trying to live up to as a society, as individuals, we're trying to make that come to be. And there's a long history of how that's been done over time, which I think we should definitely explore. But even today, the point is that that is still something that we're trying to achieve. We haven't reached that point. It's almost like a continuous unfolding journey towards an ideal of everyone being recognized as something that seems so self-evident that everyone has an intrinsic value on an individual level. And that's a foundational way of seeing and organizing and relating to society and to each other and the world around us. Yes, it is. The more we move into modern times, and this is particularly, I think, a moment in this age, the more we're starting to look around and see in a world that's mixing up where people from different cultures are coming together, whether it's different sexual persuasions or gender, there are groups and subgroups and sub-subgroups who 
are making claims that their sanctity and sacredness of their individuality is not being respected, the dignity and self-worth is somehow prejudiced against. So you're right, we are in the process of an unfolding attempt to live up to the ideal of the sanctity of the individual as being the most important ideal in Western society. And there are both injustices that exist in the moment and the way that future technology and society is going to create different pressures or different claims on our freedoms that means that this subject is never put to bed, if you like. There's always more work and more challenges to be done. So this sanctity of the individual is right at the core, the pivot point of how we think about ourselves, our society, the ideas of justice and how we shape the world in service of our own individual flourishing, the theme of our series in the future. So it's a super important foundational building block for how we think about the world. And it begs the question, where did this ideal come from? What are the origins or the roots of the sanctity of the individual in the West? I think it's really worth spending some time digging into that and figuring out where did this all start? Where did this come from? And what was the genesis of this in the West? Yeah, so if we take the idea of the sanctity of the individual and the equality of that, if we look back deep into history, that state of affairs didn't exist. So there's a super important kind of archaeology required here to delve into the past. How did we arrive at these ideas? Where did they come from? And how did they take root and take hold in the world? It depends how far you go back. But if we go right, right back, say three, four, five, six, ten thousand years ago and beyond, where we lived more or less in hunter-gatherer, societies. The idea that the individual has rights, is treated equally. These ideas, people would stare at you as though you start raving bonkers. In the hunter-gatherer phase, we lived in tribes and your role in the tribe was usually pretty clearly cut. And it was your responsibility to live up to that role. And the coherence and consistency and the success of the tribe involved us all contributing what we could from our position within the tribe to that success. The idea that I could sit there and claim rights would have seen you chucked out the tribe. <laughs> so certainly in prehistoric age, these ideas were not at the forefront of human thinking. Where I think the idea of individual and the roles and rights of individuals starts to take shape is that as we move to more agrarian societies, as we moved to farming the land and building larger societies, the issue of how do we organize ourselves in greater groups brought the challenge of hierarchy and governance and responsibilities. And then we start to see the formulation of your particular job or your particular role in society. And if we fast forward through that, we start to see patterns where there were different classes start to appear as sort of leaders, philosophers stroke religious class, the workers, the, the soldiers, the slaves. And we see in many societies the idea of strata, that you were born into a particular level of society and your duties and responsibilities as an individual was not to claim universal rights, but to fulfill the role that your fate had served you up and to do that to the best of your ability. So the idea of universality still wasn't there at all. And if we roll forward into Greek times, which I 
I think is really important to dwell on because so much of the modern world also owes a debt to the thinking of the Greeks uh, and the ancient Greeks. And we're here, we're talking about people like Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, as well as a bunch of other thinkers. There was really a sense there in that time that life would often feel like it was full of forces outside of the control, whether it's natural forces or the eras of the different gods that they had. These gods weren't the gods that we think of in Christianity, Islam, or Judaism. These were gods that were responsible for various forces and dimensions, whether it was the god of love, the god of war, the god of peace, beauty. And these gods were in conflict with each other. So life was super uncertain. Fate could take you at any moment. The gods were at war. And the Greeks were the first to say, how could we as human beings start to think about how we carve out a way of being in the world that can bring the potential for a better life, the potential for goodness in an uncertain world? And therefore, the Greeks did a lot of work in thinking about the idea of rationality, how to be reasonable, how to reason things out, the role of virtue as being a way of living that could bring the potential for goodness in the way I act and the potential to shape the world around us. So they drew attention to some really important aspects of what it is to be an individual, what it is that's almost, if you like, sacred in that enterprise of being the best possible individual. And what was interesting to see coming out of the acknowledgement that we're not just dealing with forces and threats in the world, but there's an inner life that needs to be cultivated in order to engage with a better world. And that the collection of individuals doing that makes possible the polis, a city, polis from which politics came from, the idea of creating a community that together can shape the world to enable better humans and better individuals to be able to thrive in a better world, the first sort of agent arena kind of thinking. And of course, that emerged certainly in Athens in the forms of an Athenian democracy. There was, for a while, an exploration of the idea that individuals coming together could make choices on behalf of the whole. But it's a democracy that wouldn't be recognisable to any of us if we went back there, in that the sorts of people who were able to vote and participate in that was severely restricted. Most people were not allowed to participate, certainly not women, certainly not people who weren't from Athens. So it was a very restricted democracy, and ultimately it wasn't strong enough to succeed. But we see an interesting experiment, I think, and lessons learned from a Greek democracy that give us some of the foundational ideas of the importance of the individual, the importance of the cultivation of goodness and virtue in pursuit of building a better world. And of course, that then fed forward into the Roman era and into the rise of Christianity, which I think is a super important staging post in our journey. The thing that I find very interesting about the Greek thinkers around that time is that they were exploring what it means to be human. What are the faculties that give rise to humanity? And they're focused on this idea of having rationality, having the capacity to reason. And that has been something that's really fed into the Western story. Again, that's something we kind of take for granted now, that what makes us different from animals, what makes us different from everything else, what makes us uniquely human is this capacity to use our faculties of reason, to see the world and to 
participate in it. And that was juxtaposed to this idea of fatalism, which mm. continued into the Roman times as well, of course. This idea that your destiny and your life wasn't shaped consciously by your autonomy. Rather, it was woven into the destiny of the world. You didn't have a say over where you arrived in your social strata. You were just designated your life journey and your life story by the gods, by fate. So from the Greeks and the Romans and these ideas of fate and how the world was governed, basically meant you didn't have autonomy over your station in life or where you ended up or where you were going. But at the same time as these ideas were manifest, people were exploring what does it mean to be human? I have this capacity to reason, to have rational thoughts and to affect my world. And there was this tension that got set up there. On the one hand, we're understanding our capacity to cultivate our inner life and to bring more autonomy to our world. But simultaneously, the metaphysical world was okay, I am a soldier because it was predestined for me mm. to be that way or whatever. And that was how they justified these hierarchical social classes by having this metaphysical substrate that said, this is who you are. I mean, even to the psychological nature of a Greek or a Roman, the way that I understand it is that when a person were to become angry, it wasn't that I was autonomously becoming angry as a conscious agent. It was that the spirit of Aries or the spirit of anger was embodying me. So when you became angry or when you fell in love, that wasn't actually you. That was the spirit of these gods living within you and controlling you and leading your life in a way that was already planned out for you. So I thought that that's a really interesting thing because the switch from Greek and Roman to the next stages of the story, it wasn't just slightly different. It was a radically different way of seeing and interacting with the world. Yeah, and you make a really important point there that the nature of the world, the experience of the world, a very physical world, if you like, you were truly embedded in nature. And the role of power was also something experienced as a felt sense of enhanced autonomy and the ability to shape the uncertain world. If you had more power, you could do more of that. And therefore, you were seen as somehow a superior human. If you had more knowledge and more power, you could affect greater change and have greater ability to shape the world for yourself and others. And thus, it's always been that case, the idea that there were more powerful people than others, that the more powerful you were, the more revered you were. And whether it's Greek society, which through all their wonderful philosophy and exploring the inner life and what it is to cultivate the individual, still accepted slaves as an everyday normality. The deeply hierarchical structure of Greek life, even given the attempt to bring some form of democracy. If you look across the world, whether it's Confucianism in China or the caste system in India and other civilizations, very much embedded and ingrained as societies came together and hierarchies formed was the sense that there were some people more important, more human, more to be revered than others. The idea of equality would be laughed at. It would be seen as ridiculous. It was self-evident that the beggar lying in the street had no equivalence in any shape or form to the ruler that lived in the most wonderful surroundings and could shape and order the life and death of those around them. It was self-evident that power created a hierarchy of humans and that within that hierarchy there were different roles and different rights and different things that people could ever hope to aspire to or receive. So this stratification of humanity was driven and riven into the very structure of our society. 
it just goes to show you that almost the water that they were swimming in is a very different water to yeah. the one that we're swimming in now, right? And you said it yourself. What was self-evident wasn't that there was a sacredness to every individual. What was self-evident was that your station in life, where you were on the strata, was preordained and backed up by this metaphysical substrate. And what I mean by that is that where you arrived or where you were in life was actually justified by this idea that the gods had predestined your journey in life. So people would look at someone and say, well, you are where you are because the gods don't favor you or you are where you are because you are closer to the gods and they clearly favor you. So the person that would be at the top of the hierarchy in a society would be closest to the gods or be equivalent to a god, which you see with the rise of Caesar in Rome and the justification for power in a Roman system was backed up by this worldview and in quite horrific ways that are completely alien to us now. Their ideas of what it meant to be human were based on your position in the power hierarchy. If you were at the bottom, you were literally considered a non-person. That was how you were not just considered, but how you were treated by others in such a disgraceful way that we can't fully wrap our heads around how they actually saw, not just themselves, but other people that they didn't see matched their level of individuality or matched their self-worth. It's just a world that I find even just having done a little bit of thinking around it, really hard to fully switch my mindset into what a pre-Christian Roman Greek fatalistic world must have been like. Undoubtedly, there were great thoughts thought, but it was a much more brutal world. If we roll a little bit further into the Roman Empire that subsequently conquered the Greeks and absorbed them into their expanding world empire, the idea that you could sit and talk philosophy and the higher things of life in the morning and then the afternoon go down to the amphitheater and watch whether it's Christians or some other group that was despised thrown to the lions and as form of entertainment, watch people being killed showed that there was a brutality, there was a stratification that is of such an extreme that to the modern person going back to those times, it would be absolutely terrifying and horrifying. It was a very different, as you say, set of waters that people swum in in those days as their normal. But it seemed to reflect to people of those days, the power that people had in the real world reflected a status that was enshrined in the very belief system of that culture. There were people who were much more powerful and worthy and deserving and others who are almost expendable. There's a lot written about even slaves who may in some ways be treated reasonably well. It was possible to use them for your sexual pleasure whenever you felt like it. They had absolutely no rights whatsoever and that was considered normal. You as the master had ownership of their bodies for your own whims. These were very different times to the ones we see now but yet seem to match on to the idea that the more power that you had, the higher the status, the more things you were able to do, the more you could shape the world, control the world around you. So it seemed natural to think that humans didn't exist as equal, but existed within a natural hierarchical structure, which was the waters that everyone swam in. Which was also largely immobile. It wasn't that you could really go up and down this hierarchy because where you were was just your fate. And if you were to happen to go up or down, the wheel of fate had done that for you. So there wasn't a sense of conscious autonomy and participation in the world where you could become something. You just were, and that was it. And you just kind of accepted that. And that was considered self-evident. Yes. As we said, it would be very scary to find ourselves teleported into that world and look with horror at how people live life, what they believed, how they treated each other across these different hierarchies. 
But I think that probably sets us up quite nicely to move into the next phase of the story, which is the arrival of Christianity onto the scene. And I was fascinated by a recent book published by the historian Tom Holland called Dominion. And Tom Holland is a highly acclaimed historical writer who's written a lot about especially the Roman Empire, but also the Persian Empire before that. And he's covered the history of this era, but he was fascinated in getting very intimately acquainted with how thought and belief systems that led to how societies acted in those times transformed and led to the foundation of Western society and Western civilization that subsequently built on those Roman origins. And what Tom Holland talked about in this book is the emergence of Christianity into the world we've just been describing and its transformational impact, not just as a religion, but some of the ideas embedded in Christianity itself, which subsequently became foundational into how the West evolved and developed and is built into the water that we swim in today. So one of the things that Tom Holland draws attention to is perhaps the most revolutionary idea in human history. And in Christianity, of course, we have the bringing together of multiple gods into the idea of a single, all-benevolent God. But in Christianity, we have an idea that was developed in the Old Testament in Judaism, but given more universality in Christianity, that the idea that all humans were born in the image of God, there's something sacred about all humans. There is this kind of divine spark that lies in all of us, and that in the eyes of God, we are all equal. So whether you're the beggar, the thief, the prostitute, or you're the king or the emperor, when it comes comes to your time to be judged at the pearly gates into heaven, all your material wealth will be pushed aside and God will look into the hearts of each man and woman and you'll be judged on your individual way of life. So this huge idea, the idea that we are all equal in some way in the eyes of God, that there's something divine and sacred in all of us, was arguably the most revolutionary idea to ever have been put forward, <laughs> never mind embraced in humanity, because it seemed to run so counter to all that people could see around them, that the mighty had more power, that the sick and the slaves were less deserving. This challenged fundamentally that notion and brought to it a call to see each other as there's something divine and sacred in all of us. And this was such a huge idea that was put forth at the basis of Christianity that, of course, at first the Romans just laughed at that. They said, how stupid could this be? And Christians were seen as almost the extreme idealists, almost crazy fantasists, and were even hunted for the first two or three hundred years of the Roman Empire as being a crazy cult that held out there was a god more important than Caesar and a god that was made explicit by a poor Jew that was crucified on a cross. It just didn't make sense to Roman sensibilities that this story could yield a claim for the equality and the sacredness of all human life. So Tom Holland, really interesting, goes on to explore and excavate these revolutionary ideas. There's a couple more that I think are worth exploring. One is, if we are all built in the image of God, we have this free will to choose, this free will to choose the good versus the bad, that there is a sense of a fallen nature within us, so we're always on this struggle 
um, the importance of forgiveness and mercy being important ideas that surround supporting people in this struggle to realize the ideal. This important notion that comes from seeing everyone as equal, which is that there's something special about the poor, that blessed are the poor. So what we get in this Christian framing is that the metaphysical claim that we are all equal and the idea of social justice, the the idea that the poor are special in some way and need to be supported and helped in their own journeys of life. And this idea of love your neighbor as yourself, the idea of looking at outwards, not as an extractive, what could I get from you? How useful are you? But the idea that the love your neighbor as yourself, the disposition to what would subsequently be called agape, the idea of loving God's creation and loving everything in it, and this disposition to caring about the world, a super important idea that subsequently went on to inform and inspire much of our Western thinking. So what Tom does in his book is lay claim to, and I think makes a really good case that whether you're Christian or not, (laughs) these fundamental ideas, when they got eventually taken up by the Roman Empire and expanded out across the empire as the Roman Empire became Christian, provided immensely important and powerful ideas of what it is to be human, what it is to live well, what it is that we should think about in terms of how we see each other, that then went on to be evolved and developed further in Western civilization. So there is something hugely significant in this moment in history. The ideas that Christianity brought in went on to define Western civilization and send it on a trajectory that was so different from any other part of the world. And as later writers would lay claim, this gave the foundation for the development and ultimately the huge power of Western civilization that we see in the world now, and ultimately giving rise to the waters we currently swim in, this idea that these ideas would unfold over time to form the basis of how we see the modern world. What's really interesting is that there was this intermingling between Greek and Jewish thought, even in the pre-Christian sense. There were people intermingling and discussing these ideas and trying to figure out what that meant to be an individual in the world. And everything was in this melting pot. And then all of a sudden, this story comes into the West that was lived out in history. And the effect of this narrative being lived out within the world was just so powerful that it completely reshaped society. But as we were mentioning with the Greeks and the way they were thinking, they were exploring, well, what does it mean to be a human? What does it mean to be rational? And they were coming at it from a very humanistic angle. And with this intermingling of Jewish thought and eventually Christian thought, this idea of what it means to be an individual was made sacred. It was sanctified. It was something that was of extreme and utmost importance. It meant that the kingdom of God was within you. It was within humans. So all of a sudden, the external realities of status or what your position was became insignificant. It flipped 180, this idea of what it meant to be valuable and have intrinsic value on its head. It wasn't associated with a social hierarchy and your dominance on the chain. It was your individual worth. And that idea for us is, like we said now, is self-evident. But at the time, it was radical. It was really radical. And this idea that Christianity brought in was this universal doctrine of the freedom of the will, rather than this fatalism of the pagan religions of the Greeks and the Romans, this idea that we can choose between good and bad, that we weren't predestined to live a certain life. We had within us the ability to choose between them. And this whole image of God idea is really powerful. Again, the roots of that are Judaic. You can see 
see that in Genesis 127, where it does say God created mankind in his own image. And that idea was there. It was in the culture, especially from a Jewish perspective. And I guess how a Greek would have interpreted that is what makes a human human is their ability to be rational, is their ability to be creative. And I guess that intermingling between the Greek and the Jewish perspective was okay, to be a human means to be rational, to be creative, but also it means the capacity to understand morality, to understand and apprehend that we are conscious moral agents. That goes beyond this idea of fatalism. It actually means that we can choose our destiny. We can be part of that. So the image of God, or maybe we can change what we're calling the image of God to Imago Dei, which is the Latin term for this, this Imago Dei, this image of God was within all of us. And that idea was really universalized in Christianity and in the the life of Christ because even the Jewish people saw themselves as the people of God and it was constrained within the Jewish framework. But when the story of Christ played out, when that narrative met history, all of a sudden that was available not just to a group of people, it was available to the individual regardless of social class, regardless of tribe or where you'd come from. In the New Testament, St. Paul writes to a church in Galatia, which is now modern day Turkey. So in Galatians 3.28, Paul says, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for all of you are one in Christ Jesus. So within Christianity, this idea of the sanctity of the individual got universalized and was applicable to all of humanity. This idea meant that all of a sudden God, the one God, had a one-to-one relationship with the individual and not groups was massive. And this became the basis and and even the foundation of what I would say is a dramatic de-otherization of people over time. We had a reconceptualization of what it means to be an individual. There was no in-group and out-group. We were all equal. And that was the first instance of this huge project for humankind, which is unfolding and has been unfolding over time. Yes, and that's super important. The link between the Greeks and the Christian thought, I think, is really strong. Many commentators will go, we had the Greeks, and then suddenly this weird thing called Christianity popped up and turned the world upside down. It had almost no relation or maybe even abandoned the Greek thought, and did that take us backwards or not? No, I think what Tom Holland points out, and it's interesting looking at the philosophical moves here, that the Bible, certainly the New Testament, a significant chunk of that is written by St. Paul in his letters. And St. Paul in his letters is wrestling with the idea of what does the story of Christ mean? What is its implications? What does this call for us to do in his words? So essentially what Paul is wrestling with is what is the religion that comes out of the story of Christ's life and teachings? And Paul himself was a Pharisee. He was an expert in Jewish history and Jewish scripture. He was also an extremely well-read person who was very familiar with Greek thought, with the ideas of Stoicism, which was circulating at that time. So there are many of the ideas of the Greeks that find its way into the Christian framing. And I think one of the interesting notions of this was that one of the ideas that Plato was looking at was, are there ideas or are there concepts? Are there truths of which we see attempting to be manifested in the world, but are all pointing towards perhaps the universal ideal that the world is attempting to get towards? And what Plato developed in his philosophy, that there are universal truths, sort of natural laws, if you like, that reality is always attempting to point towards but can never reach. And that these universal ideas of truth, goodness, beauty, 
are ones that are then subsequently brought together in the Christian idea of God as the divine creator to whom those laws, if you like, come from. And that there is a transcendental ideal that means that instead of looking at what material power and material wealth and material things you can accumulate on this world, that as the Greeks pointed to the cultivation of the inner life and the idea of virtue and being the best possible person you could be, the pursuit of your ideal self is now recast in living in a way that honours the purity and the ideal of goodness, truth and beauty that God is calling from you. So the transcendental ideal replaces the power on earth as the goal in which I orientate my life and to which I'm measured ultimately by the creator and that which all of us should aspire to cultivate in ourselves. The material wealth and the material power that we can get is good insofar as it affords us the opportunity to shape the world to be more godlike and to bring sort of heaven to earth, if you like. But the ultimate worth of individuals is now shifted from the material to the cultivation of the, of the soul and the spirit. So a very powerful shift, and Christianity really sort of builds on these Greek ideas and recasts them in the form of the sacred, which is a, a really interesting and powerful link between the two. So they become self-reinforcing. And to go back to your idea of the waters we're swimming in again, the thing that was interesting is there was a sea change. The metaphysical substrate of the Roman and Greek world flipped and changed changed and the fatalism was replaced by this idea that we are all conscious moral agents capable of choosing between good and bad have the capacity to reason can be creative and that was the water that people were swimming in in a post-roman world and in a way the ideas that were started then the spark that happened there has been something that has been almost like a cosmic pattern that has rippled into the world and this unfolding ideal to reach for which is to respect the intrinsic worth and value and dignity within each one of us. And the basis for that was given a metaphysical narrative that we could all live within. That was the point that it wasn't just a vague story. It had a metaphysical underpinning, a theological underpinning by which people in that world would live in the same way as the pre-Christian era would literally look at the world and see fate being directed and their lives being governed by the gods in plurality. The new metaphysical substrate, this new sea that people were swimming in, the new waters were filled by this story, which made it tangible and livable and governed the next phase of the Western story, which I think it would be really interesting to dive into and kind of ask ourselves the question, how has this understanding of the sanctity of the individual played out over the course of Western civilization over the last 2000 years since this sea change or the change of waters occurred? What is the story there? A super important question. So we delved quite a bit into the arrival of Christianity and some of the, the core Christian ideas. And Tom Holland, in his book, is not trying to proselytize Christianity per se, but he's looking at these ideas that arose in Christianity and to the degree to which they then informed and shaped much of Western civilization up to the current day. So the claims that we've been discussing that Christianity made were outrageous, you know, as we talked earlier, that the reality of how people lived at those times, that the idea that in some sense, the sacredness and sanctity of the individual, they're all equal, that was an ideal held out, but it was a long way from the reality of that moment. And it took several hundred years for the Roman Empire to eventually find that this highly rebellious Christian message was 
spreading around the empire. This new set of ideas, this new religion spread quite rapidly around the Roman Empire to the point where Constantine became the first Roman emperor to adopt it and make it the official religion of the Roman Empire. There's arguments as to whether he did that because he truly was converted or whether he saw embracing Christianity as a strategic move to provide a metaphysical solidity to the Roman Empire that would strengthen it in its aspirations to expand and obviously defend itself. But the Roman Empire, as we know, has tentacles spread right across Europe into the Middle East and into North Africa. So the Roman Empire acted as the vehicle for expanding, extending the ideas embedded in Christianity, as well as Christianity itself, to all corners of the Roman Empire, which had a twin track ruling infrastructure. There was the emperor who ruled for the purposes of rule on earth, and the pope who was instituted as the ruler of the spiritual world. So they worked in concert on the material and the spiritual. So Christianity spread across the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire eventually fell, but the papacy retained its presence. And what was really interesting to see is how in the rubble of the Roman Empire, the the arrival of kingdoms who wanted, because they had a Christian people, to retain some relationship to the papal authority, were granted what was come to be known as the divine right of kings, that you can rule your people with papal authority because you were now God's emissary, if you like, taking care of the spiritual needs of your people. So we start to see the beginnings of new social, political, national structures arise with Christianity baked into its framework. So when we're talking about how has the understanding of the sanctity of the individual played out in Western civilization and how this core concept has evolved, we need to dive into that. But something that I think is worth mentioning is this idea of this unfolding Imago Day that rippled through society, i.e. how we relate to ourselves as individuals, to each other as individuals and to the world as individuals. This idea that this unfolded throughout a period of time is really interesting to explore because it seems to me, and I'm sure we'll dive into this, is that this idea of the sanctity of the individual has been used time and time again to win freedoms for people as that Judeo-Christian narrative has been internalized and acted out, which has led to a giant transformation of society and has eventually brought us out of things like feudalism into modernity. But I guess one caveat that's worth mentioning before we dive into what the Imago Dei means and what the origins of this all was, is that it's not our intention in any way here to romanticize history using this lens of the sanctity of the individual. It's a way of evaluating and sharing one particular perspective of the thread that runs throughout Western culture and Western society. And there are obviously many different ways to look at that. And in no way is what we're saying an attempt to try and make it all sunshine and rainbows. But this is a way to understand how that one idea, looking at things through the lens of the sanctity of the individual, has played out. And really to understand what it means for us to be individuals today. In the current context, we need to tap into and look at that root narrative, almost as if these ideas were fundamental to the original source code of the cultural network. So that's why we're going to spend time thinking about what this is and why this is important. Because since the genesis of this idea, we've been wrestling with what it means to be an individual in relation to ourselves, each other and society. And one of the ways that you can look at that entire story is looking at how this has led to the changing dynamics of power structures over time, how power structures and absolute power has been decentralized, how hierarchies have been flattened, and how we've been basically imperfectly redistributing what 
had been absolute power. So this whole story from the lens of the Imago Day, from the Judeo-Christian lens of what's happened since then, is this kind of unfolding journey, this story of how the individual has become the base unit of society, or to use some of the language we've been using in earlier episodes, the organizing node. The way that we see things and the sanctity of the individual being paramount to how we organize ourselves in groups. That's all just to lay context for the next part of this conversation. So the transformation to society that appreciates the sanctity of the individual within everyone has its roots in this Christian narrative. And for the first 300 years of Christianity, Rome was essentially persecuting Christians that had this radical idea until Emperor Constantine converted to Christianity, established it across the empire, and it became so dominant that after Rome collapsed, the church became the de facto power across Europe, with the Pope being able to declare the authority of kings across the West, with this whole thing that you were mentioning about there being this divine right of kings that is somehow ordained by God, which kind of, well, definitely goes contrary to the idea that the individual is sacred, right? So there's already been this historical conflict that's set up by this idea that this institution was ordaining and allowing kings to have divine right over the people. And like we said, this idea of the Imago Dei rippled out and unfolded over time. So when we're looking at things from a historical context and we see these kind of inconsistencies and contradictions, when we're looking at this through the lens of the Imago Dei, through the lens of the story that's unfolding as we gradually realize the individuality and the sacredness of that intrinsic value, we kind of need to look at it as this narrative being enacted out through different phases in history. And I think we can definitely look at some of the fence posts, some of the key points within at least from the history of the West, where we were playing out this idea and trying to figure out what was going on. And one of the ones that comes to my mind immediately is the Magna Carta. So the Latin Magna Carta means the Great Charter. It was a document that was signed around 800 years ago. The precise date was 1215. And the reason why this particular event is quite significant is this was at the starting point from us moving away from this idea of there being a divine right of kings that's been ordained and given by the Pope in this very hierarchical fixed structure, moving from that which doesn't recognize the full sanctity of the individual to moving towards equal judgment under the law. So this is a really key point in the history of the West where we were figuring this stuff out. For people that don't know much about the Magna Carta, there was essentially this really bad king at the time called King John, who was a tyrant. And he got into debt, lots of debt, funding wars in France. So trying to regain land and maintain land in France. And because of all the debt he was getting into, he was imposing lots of taxes on his barons. So basically on the elite class in England. And as a result of this, as a result of his tyrannical way of governing through the divine right of kings, where he was essentially above the law and had an absolute monarchy where he could tell people what to do and they would have to submit and have to be subjected to his will. As a result of the way that he was governing the country, we can't really say governing, basically dictating the needs of the country, the elites, these barons, they rebelled and they took hostage London. They captured London and demanded that he would obey the law, demanded that he was subject to the same law. So as this charter, as this agreement was negotiated, the key thing here was that no one was above the law. No one could be beyond the judgment of other people. And within the Magna Carta was one of the first instances where there's something there that said, free men have the right to justice and a fair trial. Every free man should be judged by their equals. And this was an instance in which people were trying to figure out this relationship 
relationship between the authority and their selves as equals. But what's interesting about the Magna Carta is that this still only applied to free men. So these barons, basically the elites in England at the time, that wasn't the majority of the population because the majority of the population were peasants and they were under a feudalistic rule. So what's important to highlight here is that the social system at place, even though there was this kind of negotiation for equality under the law, that was only applied to a collective within the hierarchy. There was still a huge way and a long way to go to recognize the individual human worth in everyone and to get individual freedom. But it was still a really significant event. And it was something that went on to inspire and influence lots of different moments in history. Yeah, and that's super interesting what you've laid out there, that Magna Carta had a hugely influential role in shaping the relationship between the leader and his people that went on to influence massively the unfolding of Western thought and ideals subsequently. But it's probably worth mentioning at this point that the divine right of kings that was granted to, in this case, King John and all previous and subsequent kings in the hierarchy wasn't just a there you are go off and rule how you want you've got the divine right to rule the pope had his emissaries alongside the kings of europe to ensure that their rule was coherent and consistent with the christian doctrine so in some ways these archbishops in the case of england were like the conscience of the king the king was duty-bound to consult the archbishop on matters of rule, of which the archbishop could feed back to the pope, and the pope could sanction the king and threaten to take away his divine rights. So there was an uneasy kind of relationship between kings who wanted to rule in their own self-interest, who were being bound by the church in terms of what sorts of decisions they were undertaking. But what we see here is an interesting challenge, which is how, in a more complex and growing set of societies, how do rulers rule in ways that can bring order and benefits to the people who are ruled in ways that balance the earthly power, interests and needs of the ruler with the divine and transcendental needs of Christianity in terms of what it is to be good and to honour some of the core theses and the core instructions that come from Christianity itself. So what we see is an attempt to reconcile that tension in the form of contracts that bind the king into a relationship with his people that honours them, and that that binding of the relationship, if you like, that law, that earthly law, that secular law, is in of itself something seen as something sacred. It's almost like the divine law is revealed and constructed and elaborated to reflect the divine rule of kings in terms of his divine relationship with his subjects. So the idea of law itself is something sacred and divine that binds the king, that binds the feudal aristocracy, but also binds the people into a new relationship that tries to bring to earth, bring into reality what this respect for the individual, the sanctity of the individual, what does this actually mean in real everyday terms in the world that we live in? So we see that Magna Carta is the first document that brings that to life. What we see unfolding, I think, is an interesting precedent that sets. I mean, there are many steps along the journey which that gets evolved. There's an interesting one where, again, Charles I, rolling forward to the 17th century, demands taxes from the nation to support his own projects and wars at a time 
where the country cannot afford it and brings great poverty and strife. And there is, again, a rising up of people that end up in the petition of right, which builds on Magna Carta and starts to afford people more rights than they've ever had before. So those rights are not just for the aristocracy, but rights for all, in this case, all men. So what we see is this universalizing of the sanctity of individual now expressing itself in what people can expect in terms of how they're treated, how they're judged, and the relationship that they have with the king. So the rights of the individual, all individuals, are now being enshrined in secular law, which is a further elaboration. I would just add that the way that it comes across to me from my perspective is that the power structures, so the power structure of the king ruling the people and the power structure of the institutionalized church were basically two competing power systems that weren't fully decentralizing and recognizing the Imago Dei, like the image of God within every individual. So in this situation here, we see the beginnings of that, but there was still this tension between these two things. It's like, who's in control? Who gets to tell people how to live their lives? How do you organized society. That tension was running through it. But the Magna Carta was referenced by really influential people that were winning freedoms hundreds and hundreds of years after. Like I can think of Nelson Mandela, for example, referenced the Magna Carta when he was on trial. And Gandhi used that as the basis for his Indian Relief Act. So even though when we're talking about this, it seems like how does this actually relate to the sanctity of us as individuals if there was the institutionalized church and the kings vying for power and control? Well, yeah, that was the case because this story is unfolding over time. So right here was one of the first instances where absolute monarchy was transitioning. And we see another follow-up, as you mentioned, over time with King Charles, but then also about 500 years later after the Magna Carta, something called the Bloodless Revolution, or the Glorious Revolution is also known as, which was actually a revolution where the king at the time James II was overthrown and was replaced by his daughter, Mary, and her husband, William of Orange. And this was called the Bloodless Revolution, although it probably wasn't completely bloodless because of the lack of violence that was involved in this. And what was very significant about this particular event is we've already mentioned how there was an agreement between the elites and the king in the Magna Carta. Well, here there was another kind of agreement, and this time it was the Bill of Rights. And the Bill of Rights in this transition from King James II, who was a Catholic, to his daughter, who was a Protestant, was that when they came into power, the Bill of Rights greatly limited that power and actually broadened constitutional law. So it did things like it granted parliamentary control over finances and the army. And it gave people certain inviolable civil and political rights. So one of them that I can think of was it gave parliamentary freedom of speech, for example. So there is a thread that could be pulled from this document, which is the Magna Carta, to the next document of the Bill of Rights and so on. So even though that, again, was just giving rights to men and only to a specific group of men, it was still broadly based on collectives rather than truly individuals. You can see this decentralization of power occurring. And why is that occurring? Why do people even consider themselves equal? There is a claim to say that that metaphysical narrative that was started over 2000 years ago was being realized throughout history through these different points of contentions, through these revolutions, through these ideas that were being enacted out and that that original source code was giving credence to these ideas that we are all equal. So the question I think that was being played out was this, if everyone is truly equal and truly of intrinsic value, where did sovereignty lie? And by sovereignty, I mean, where does supreme power and authority lie if everyone is truly equal? And we can see how that played out over time in different ways. 
And there's three philosophical thinkers in a certain period of history that were wrestling with this idea. And they were all in some ways looking at the social contract, which was concerning the legitimacy of the authority of the state over the individual. They were wrestling with this idea of what is the individual's relationship to society? What is the agent's relationship to the arena? What's the individual's relationship to the collective? And they all had very different ways of looking at it, but they all were within a hundred years of each other, all of these thinkers. So the people that were looking at this were digging in to human nature and looking at these relationships. So the three thinkers that I think are worth bringing up here when it comes to the social contract are the three that wrote explicitly about them. So that would be Hobbes, who wrote Leviathan in 1651, Locke, who wrote the Second Treatise of the Government in 1689, and Rousseau, who wrote the Social Contract in 1762. And all of those thinkers had a profound influence on the West and the consequent ideas that flowed from that. But what's interesting is that they all had very different ideas of what human nature is and what it means. And as a result, different ways of the individual participating in the world and the individual relationship to what is sovereign. So for Hobbes, the idea of human nature was that it was inherently destructive, fundamentally corrupt, and that contrasted Locke's idea, which was basically human beings are essentially a blank slate or a tabula rasa, which is the Latin for blank slate, which meant that there was no inherent destructiveness to human beings. And actually, if people were left to their own devices, ultimately they would find ways to better themselves. And then finally, you had Rousseau, who thought human nature was naturally good. And in fact, it was society and civilization that had a destructive effect on the individual and corrupted the individual. So whereas Hobbes was saying, actually, we're fundamentally corrupt as people, Rousseau had the opposite argument, which said civilization corrupts humans. And actually, if civilization wasn't in the way, well, the world would be quite idyllic. So his idea of civilization was that it created self-love, it created narcissism, it created competition for status and money and losing sight of reality, essentially. But Hobbes was saying, actually, because we are inherently destructive and fundamentally corrupt, that if we weren't to have a sovereign that was ruling over us or an authority, we would descend into chaos and anarchy. So for Hobbes, the state of nature without any kind of control system, without any kind of power structure was a state of anarchy and chaos. For Rousseau, the state of nature was idyllic and guided by empathy and there was no authority structure that needed to govern it because without civilization, we were ultimately good. And then you had Locke that said that in a state of nature, without any governing structures, we were broadly peaceful, looking to preserve ourselves and better ourselves. And as a result of the ways that they thought, the idea of sovereignty was radically different. Hobbes thought we needed order and stability. And in order to do that, humans would realize that their own self-interests are better protected by a sovereign than by anarchy. And as a result, were willing to give up absolute freedom or authority over themselves in return for peace. Whereas Locke, for example, said that men wouldn't fearfully give this up under threat, but would do so voluntarily. For a limited government, you could have protection of your life and your liberty and your property. And then Rousseau believed that sovereignty, real sovereignty, was in the hands of the general will, not in terms of a monarchy or a parliament, but the general will of the collective. And Rousseau and Locke in particular went on to influence two massive changes in the West, Locke directly influencing the American Revolution and Rousseau influencing the French Revolution. And even the idea of revolutions, these for me seem like they were convulsions playing out through society of how do we as equal individuals relate to the power structures around us? How do we relate to our world as truly sacred individuals capable of reason, creativity and apprehending right from wrong, apprehending morality? We don't have enough time in this show to deep dive into these people. But if you're interested in seeing how these thoughts were playing out in society, they're three thinkers that you can really contrast and compare 
because they were all looking at this social contract and how individuals should be governed. I think all of those three thinkers were living at a time where people were starting to move off the land into cities and towns. The Industrial Revolution would soon be coming our way. And therefore, there was a complicating factor of how do we live with each other and under the rules and governance of some organising structure. If we were living all in little rural hamlets, and maybe this wasn't such of a, a challenge, but as we're coming together to live together, to build things together, to build more powerful forces, companies, industries, cities, this question of how we live together and how we governed became an incredibly important question to focus on. And Hobbes, Locke and Rousseau had different intuitions about the fundamental nature of ourselves and what the motive forces that drive our behaviour. But all of them agreed that in order that we may have our individual rights and our ability to coordinate together in ways that don't prove destructive to the whole, there was a need for a model of governance that could ensure the well-being of the whole while protecting the rights of the individual. And all of them accepted that individuals should be seen as having, in some sense, equal rights in this conception of this new relationship. Now, as many people listening to this will say, well, hold on, what about women? What about slaves? What about others? And it's absolutely true that in this conception, the universality of the sanctity of the individual was constrained mainly to men. But even that itself, that there was an equality amongst men, was in itself a radical idea that was drawing from these Christian roots and was giving shape to the first attempts to try and build a new compact between the governed and the governed that reflected and recognised the sanctity of the individual and the need for some sort of collective way of being where the governors of a society could coordinate and enable the individuals of society to maximally flourish to the benefit of all. So the social contract was trying to institutionalize what this might look like, drawing from a greater understanding of the individual, which was coming through the Enlightenment, but also bound in this notion that the sanctity and sacredness of the individual lay at the foundation of this particular project. The really important thing to bring up is the fact that this was hugely imperfect. And people criticise when they look back at history, the fact that this was limited still. This idea wasn't being fully realised, that the promise of that story, more than a thousand years later at this point, was not being realised. So this journey has gone from absolute monarchy with the divine right that's been ordained by a pope. So basically a really rigid hierarchical structure ordaining how we should be governed to gradually, slowly giving more and more people their freedom. But that's still even in this point in time being very, very restricted. But even just going from a king to the elites and then from the elites to the people that were under feudalism and people eventually coming out of feudalism was a big step. Although for us, looking back on it now from our present context, it's like, that's crazy. Why were our rights as individuals individuals not being fully realised. And it's a really valid criticism to bring up. And it's worth mentioning here again, because there was lots of things going wrong. But here, the narrative, the idea, the question was being played out and people were trying to grapple with what this meant at this point in history. And two revolutions that came out of this thinking from this idea about where the sovereignty lie were the American and the French Revolution. So let's start off with the French Revolution, even though it happened slightly after the next decade after 
the American Revolution. So the French Revolution happened in 1789. The storming of the Bastille was the 14th of July, 1789. And the reason this happened, you know, we were speaking earlier about King John being in debt funding wars in France. Well, actually, this time, France was in debt funding the American Revolution. So they were funding the American side against the English. So at this time, there was also financial turmoil. And as a result, in the French Revolution, the monarchy got overturned and was replaced with a humanist approach to how we should be governed. So even at this point in time, there were different estates, different strata of society in which everyone was divided up. So obviously you had the monarchy, then you had the nobles, the clergy, which was the church, and then everyone else. So this very strated hierarchical society was something that people were rebelling against. And this was another instance where no one was meant to be above the law. And I guess everyone's aware of that motto in the French Revolution, or the motto of the French, which is liberté, égalité, fraternité. And one of the things that comes to my mind is what is the basis for that? What was the basis of the French Revolution? What was the basis of this idea of equality? Where did that come from? And the reason why I bring that up is that in the French Revolution, not only did they rebel against the absolute monarchy and the corruption that was there, they also saw that the state and the church were closely connected and actively rebelled away from the church. And some of the ways that they did this was they actively changed the calendar away from it being based on the birth of Jesus Christ and changed the calendar to year one. So they were completely rebelling against this kind of church system. And they even named the Notre Dame the Temple of Reason. So they were really, really interested in pursuing equality and getting the sanctity of the individual realized in society. But they did it in a way that specifically turned away from the institution of the church. What I find interesting is that even though they did turn away from that, the idea of the Imago Dei, the idea that the image of God, this equality is within us all, was still in the cognitive grammar and the way they organized themselves. But the French Revolution was very, very different from the American one. And it led to lots of bloody revolts until eventually there was so much chaos that an authoritarian leader came along that was Napoleon that took control of the whole situation. So in this pursuit for equality based on a humanist foundation, ultimately Napoleon came in. Yes, that's super interesting. It shows the challenge of the general will. How do you ground the general will in something that doesn't become the tyranny of the majority against the minority? But we'll park that for a moment and look at the American Revolution. And the American Revolution is super important in so much as for the last 70, 80 years, America has risen to prominence in the Western world and has the world superpower and has supremely influential around the world in terms of how to live the idea of liberal democracy and freedom. America's been at the forefront of projecting those Western ideals around the world. So it's interesting to see its own formation and the ideas that are at the core of its own creation. And of course, the US was a colonial outpost of England and fought for its own independence, which when succeeding in that fight yielded the declaration of independence and the formation of its own new constitution. And the US constitution was put together in its first form in 1787, two years before the French Revolution, which was followed by the US Bill of Rights. And what's interesting about the US is its orientation towards Protestantism and the idea of a lot of the Pilgrim Fathers that was the underlying idea that this was an opportunity in the unfolding new America to build a new heaven on earth. So there was a very sort of overtly kind of religious thinking around the creation of God's country and how we're able to constitute that in an arrangement that makes explicit 
how we would live in this new country that was created. And the constitution talks in language that is deeply drawing from these Christian roots that we've been talking about. It talks about the inalienable rights of the right to life, personal liberty and the pursuit of happiness and states quite explicitly we hold these truths to be self-evident all men are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights so these rights are not ones that are just drawn up from thinking about a secular view from the ground up these are endowed by the creator that we are all equal all men have access to these fundamental principles enshrined in the very bedrock of that constitution is the idea of the sacredness and the inviability of the individual and that the right to life the right to liberty the pursuit of happiness and property was available to all or men as we'll come on to in a minute that in itself is a promise that the US has struggled to live up to but that has enshrined in its very foundations these Christian ideas that we've been exploring in this episode. And as we just indicated there, the enshrinement of the Constitution is a founding document which holds out a promise to the American people of how the US would be governed, but also what rights would accrue to each individual in this new country that had been formed, have driven a passionate sense amongst America and probably in the West that this This is probably the most progressive explication of a social contract instituted into a founding constitution that has existed in modern history and therefore is something super important to think about. Now, if we go back to the Christian ideal that all were equal in the eyes of God and there's something divine in all of us, the sacredness of human life, realizing that promise, as we've been talking about, has been a difficult journey from the reality of extremely hierarchical societies of the past to the increasing need to create and govern nation states in which the power of the sovereign and the responsibility of the individuals and the institutionalization of that relationship needed to be made more explicit, needed to be made more real, needed to be realized in the context of these overarching Christian ideas which infused this whole journey. And so the unfolding of this ideal, as we've seen, has been slowly but surely expressed through these transformations from the Magna Carta to the American Constitution. However, the full realization of that has always fallen short of the ideal. And one of the things that became super important in the following on from the creation of America was the growth of the cotton trade and other businesses across the Caribbean and North America for the slave trade. And when we look at this now, we think, well, how How the hell could we have done the mental gymnastics to hold all humanity equal with equal rights and affected a slave trade under the American constitution. And what became clear through this process, there were many elements of society that still weren't aligned with this ideal. And the industrialization of bringing hundreds of thousands, even millions of Africans across in service of the cotton industry and other colonial projects really brought home to many in society 
the contradiction between the ideal that we held ourselves to live up to and the reality of what was going on in the world. And it was Wilberforce who was at the forefront of pointing out and agitating for the fact that we had an ideal that we were failing on as a civilization and brought about the revolution which banned the slave trade, which eventually was pushed out to the rest of Europe. And we've seen over the last centuries the unwinding and the banishing of these ways of treating other people and in this despicable manner and really bringing to life the promise of the sanctity of the individual. I think the way that this played out in other inequalities is interesting to see. And one of the highlights of that, I think, is Martin Luther King and the civil rights movement in the 60s, because America still instituted a policy that was of racial segregation. And Martin Luther King's call to action was not to seek to attack the whites, but to hold them accountable to the very ideals that were enshrined in their own constitution, which in turn were born out of this Christian ideal of the sanctity of the individual. And his call was that the American constitution was effectively a promissory note, a call to create a country where all people could be treated equally in dignity and respect. And that what America had done had failed in its mission to live up to its own promise. And therefore, the call for racial justice was not a war of one section of society against another, but a call to live up to the very promise embedded within that constitution. And in appealing as he did in that way, it was a powerful call to the conscience of America. Did it believe in its own founding constitutional beliefs? Did it believe in the equality of individuals and the sanctity of the individual? And it was through that realisation and that approach that many of the civil rights were gained and become more enshrined into the American society. Now, there is still lots of work to be done. There are still contestations, and we've got this playing out in our society today. But if we look at the narrative arc, what we see is the Christian promise embedded, enshrined in a constitution that calls for the equality of all and a social justice movement that continues to fight to bring that to life. I think one of the paradoxes about a lot of the stuff that's happened throughout history is that people are trying to enact and play out this idea of what does equality and intrinsic worth actually mean, but whilst always having a perception of the other, not fully de-otherizing, which makes it seem so paradoxical because people were wrestling with this idea of what intrinsic value is and what the image of God looks like within us, but whilst retaining this in-group and out-group dynamic, which leads to some terrible contradictions and some awful things that have happened throughout history. But when we look at things purely, again, there's many lenses that you can put on history to evaluate it and to criticize it and to find different insights to how the story is unfolded. But if we look at the thread of the Imago Day, the idea that within each of us, we are all of equal worth, we all have the image of God within us and the freedom of will to choose right from wrong, which is the basis of our rights. When you look at something like what happened in America, despite all of the contradictions and the paradoxes there, if you look at the idea of these truths being self-evident and unalienable rights, even though explicitly the American Revolution was the idea of separating church and state, separating the institution of the church from the state. This idea of being unalienable, what does that even mean? Well, it means the thing in question not being subject to being taken away from someone or even given away by the possessor. So this idea that this capacity, this faculty for rationality, creativity and the ability to apprehend morality 
was not something that anyone could give away or be taken away from someone had its roots specifically in this idea of the Imago Dei. And this was meant to be self-evident. This was so core to the way that people would see themselves. Another person worth mentioning is Frederick Douglass, the African-American abolitionist who viewed the constitution as the ideal to which the country had yet to fulfill. So even with all of these paradoxes and these in-groups and out-groups, people were using that Imago Dei, that thread of history to claim more rights and to win more freedoms. And that was really beautifully seen in Martin Luther King, who was explicitly irreverent and was probably more than anyone using that understanding of everyone being entitled to dignity and equal treatment being rooted in that. And there's a quote that he says, which is, the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. This point that these freedoms didn't happen overnight. They were gradually, painfully won over time. But they were using this idea, this narrative that we are all equal. We all have intrinsic value and worth that has been given to us through the creator, through this narrative that no one can take away from you or you can give away to others. Yes. And the important, I think, elements in the US Constitution, we don't need to justify it. It is self-evident. There's already the assumption that this Christian idea has infused us so deeply that it's not even questionable. It's self-evident and that these rights are unalienable. They cannot be taken away. So these super important revolutionary ideas that challenged the Roman ideals of power and hierarchy, the idea of imago Dei and the equality of all individuals, are now seen to be unalienable and self-evident. See how far humanity has progressed that that can be the new assumption. An idea that would have been laughable in Roman times has now become unquestionable foundation, a basic building block on which we even should conceive of each other and the world that we're building. So a super important point. But I think there is one way in which this story has gone further and that brings us up to a more modern time. And that is the world wars of First World War, Second World War, and the horrendous suffering wrought upon the world by those wars and the ideas that went into them that led to a sense in the world that never again could we contemplate a war, a third world war. And I think made specially pertinent by the fact that the Second World War had unleashed catastrophic weapons, which meant any Third World War could itself result in the annihilation of the entire human species. So the United Nations, after a false start, got its act together. And part of that was to say, how do we think about humanity as a whole? How do we think about the rights of individuals? Can we agree on a common basis by which we can treat each other and govern our people in ways that don't lead us down a route to conflict or genocide in the ways that we've seen in horrendous clarity that our societies can shift towards or tip into if we fall into totalitarian or despotic or poisonous ideological frameworks. There is an underpinning, an undergirding of humanity that we need to collectively come together to agree such that we won't transgress that and we can learn the lessons of the past and take some of these ideas that were perhaps made most explicit in the American Constitution and universalize those across the world. So the UN Declaration of Human Rights enshrines a base level of human rights that most countries in the world signed up to, although one could argue whether they're actually following through on the delivery of this. But the idea that we could all come together as humanity and see that we all as individuals have some equality in rights that we can all claim 
to be respected by whatever government, by whatever society that we find ourselves in, is the ultimate expression of that Christian ideal made manifest across the world. That not claiming that it needs Christianity to justify it, but that Christianity in some ways in the West had pointed the way towards these universal ideas, which could now stand on their own legs as being self-evident, as being equated with civilization that now could be held up and enshrined in a covenant for all countries across the world to honor and respect. And this is maybe the greatest creation, the greatest manifestation of that original Christian promise born 2,000 years ago, and probably represents the high point of that unfolding attempt to realize that original promise throughout the course of history. We kicked off this episode talking about what it means to be an individual and then looking at the past and understanding how people were trying to understand what it means to be an an individual through the context of their lives and society and culture. How did they relate to themselves, to each other and to the world around them? And we've pulled on this one idea, this one lens out of a hundred lenses that you could look at the Western story through history. We picked out this idea of the Imago Dei, the image of God, to see how people have been wrestling with that idea when everyone is meant to have intrinsic value and self-worth and dignity that's inherent within them. So that was a way in which people were coming to terms with their individuality. But I also feel like it misses out the other side of the story, which people would also understand in a historical context to be influential in how they saw the world, from a Christian perspective at least, which is they wouldn't just see themselves as having the image of God within them, but that would also have its opposite, which would be human beings' fallen nature, which is rooted in the biblical text with the story and the narrative of the fall of creation, of the fall of Adam and Eve, creates a union of opposites. On the one hand, you have the image of God, the sanctity, the sacredness of the individual. That's something that needs to be protected and it needs to be honoured in everyone, in the way that we treat ourselves, in the way that we treat others and how we interact with people in the world. But this other side of how people would see themselves as individuals also included this idea that there is a fallen nature, that we're in some way imperfect and we are constantly battling with that and we're constantly struggling with that. I know you mentioned that at the very beginning of this episode. You were saying in Dominion, Tom Holland also mentions this. That's a book that I certainly should read. But this union of, of opposites between us being imperfect beings, but also being made in the image of God, creates this interesting paradox there. And I think we've been kind of hinting at it in terms of what was going on in the unfolding story. But it seems like in human nature, there is this tendency to continually create in-groups and out-groups. But the whole point of the narrative of the Christian story is to de-otherize, is to say that we are all equal. And like we brought up with the quote at the beginning, one of the most important quotes here is, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. This idea is so important, this idea of de-otherization and everyone being made in the image of God. Like in Genesis 127, it's God created mankind in his own image, but it wasn't mankind in the sense of just men. It was God created humankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. This whole idea that there really was this equality that was realized in effect through the story of Christ. And this whole idea of us having a fallen nature, I think is also coupled to this crazy contradiction that we have in our human nature where constantly throughout history, constantly throughout time, we see this tendency to put people into in-groups and out-groups, even though that's explicitly not meant to be part of the story. So I was wondering if you'd be up for maybe spending some time discussing the contradiction and the complete opposite of the Imago Dei, which is the fallen nature, which I find is a really interesting mirror to the other side that we've just been discussing. 
Oh, that's a super profound and deep question. There's something supremely profound in the Imago Dei, the conception that not only we are a creation of God, but we are created in God's image. So as a creation of God, we're always going to be less than God. We're always going to be constrained and limited by the bound nature of our physicality, the time that we're available, the capacity of our brains and insight to be able to make sense of the world. So in some ways, we are born with limitations. Yet, if we're born in the image of God, then there's something divine within us. And part of the Christian teaching is if we are born in the image of God, there's something divine within within us, that not only did God create the world, the creation story had God's speaking into existence, the creation of the universe and ourselves. And this idea of the logos, which both is important in Greek thought, but is also the idea in Christianity that God can speak into existence through the act of creation, that we, as made in his image, are also agents of his creation. We too participate in the creation through the things that we do. And the Logos that we possess is this ability through our imagination, through our orientation, we can speak into being our imagination to create things in the world that actually create the world in which we live. So we participate in the creation, but we can only do so from a partial limited perspective. And therefore we are bound by the body that we inhabit, the desires and needs of that body. So there's always a tension between the drives that animate us and the ideal which we might aspire to, which leads us to faith in realizing the ideal. And one way that's been conceptualized is the idea of the fallen, the idea that there is good and evil in all of us that we contend with. So life is not just playing out a perfect manifestation of God's will. It's a struggle. Life is a struggle in which we have to confront the goodness and the badness our self-interest and the interest of a better world. The context in which this drama is playing out is changing through the centuries. It changes depending on where you pop out into the world in your moment in history in the particular context. But this call to struggle, this call to realize the ideal from your limited perspective and limited capability and from your fragility and weakness and disposition to fall prey to your internal appetites and desires is the eternal drama that we find ourselves in. And there's a metaphysical framing of that, but there's also an evolutionary framing of that. We know from evolutionary theory that we spent 95 to 96% of human existence living in small tribes. So we are by very nature tribal creatures who see an in-group as friends that we can bind and cleave to and an out-group, the other, as a potential enemy and a potential threat. So from an evolutionary psychology perspective, deep in our psyche is the sense in which we split and categorize the world into us and them. And one of the interesting stories of the unfolding human drama, which is, I think, what the Christian message is appealing to, is that we need to find a way to transcend our inclination to divide the world into us and them, where the them becomes a threat, them becomes an enemy, the them becomes an other, the them then becomes something less than human human, which then justifies the potential for violence. And throughout history, the 
challenge as we moved from hunter-gatherer tribes to these agrarian societies and through the axial age and right the way through to the modern society, we find a world that's much more populated. We're now coming together and living and sharing the same space with people we've never seen before. We don't know. So the hair trigger we have in our evolutionary psychology is to quickly fall to othering those who we don't know. And therefore, you can think about the story of our evolution as being one of what is the unifying stories we can tell about ourselves that provide the binding energy that can hold us together, whether we're membership of a tribe, are we membership of a lineage, are we membership of a clan, are we member of a particular city or a civilization, are we ultimately all children of God, the ultimate container in which we're all rendered part of the same family. And so the struggle in society is, is there there a unifying or binding energy that holds us together that's stronger than the cleaving energy that can drive us apart. Because even if we are participants in the same city or the same nation, we can look at each other and see differences, the strangers that come, those who look different, those who dress different, those of a different sexual persuasion. There are always differences which could drive the energy to cleave. And we need a story of how we're bound together as a universalizing us that's stronger than this propensity to cleave. And the interesting challenge for our current age is we've become more uncertain certain and anxious about the world we live in and the world we're creating. The binding energy, the energy that was formally given to us by we're all Christians together in the West, that held a common identity which bound us together, that is dissolving. The world is becoming less safe and secure. There's more anxiety and therefore the propensity to cleave around different identities is becoming stronger. And this is the risk of our age, is the fracturing of our society. So the message, I think, from Christianity is super important. The unifying story of we're all children of God was a powerful unifying story that for many centuries, maybe millennia, has worked to unify us in a common identity. That need is still there, even though the metaphysics of justifying it through Christianity may have weakened in the last couple of centuries. So there's a pointer to something super important in the Christian story that needs to be sustained in the modern world. And that's a challenge for us existentially as a civilization at this moment in history. I think one of the ideas that this narrative of being made in the image of God gives us is, okay, what makes us human? Again, looking at the Greek line of thought, we are rational, we have the ability to create, we are conscious autonomous agents. But when we look at what does conscious autonomy as an agent look like, what comes with that is ultimately that you have the ability within your power to choose, to make decisions and to choose right from wrong, good from bad, but also to contend with the fact that we are, as you said, limited in what we know. So when we do take actions, even when we are acting in a way that where we feel like we're doing what's right, we never fully know. So we're always in the sense on this path to become Coming. We're learning, we're falling, in, not in the fallen sense, we're falling in the sense that we're growing and on a road to becoming more than we are. So there's this sense that from the idea of having free will and the ability to choose, we also will mess up a lot of the time, which I just wanted to add to that idea of being fallen, because obviously we all are like, if we just strip the metaphysical substrate from what we've been talking about, 
there's this sense that we're all trying to live up to our potential. We're always on that journey to grow and to become more of what we think is good and aligning ourselves with that higher good. That's what we kind of identify as having a good life as being. But we can never, like you've said previously, never fully live up to that ideal. And this idea of there's a tendency to create in-groups and out-groups and full back into that world but because we've been talking quite a lot about revolutions and this idea of playing out where does sovereignty lie one of the things that is quite harrowing about particularly the 20th century is the revolutions that took place then when ideas were being played out on mass scales so we've spoken about the american revolution and the french revolution but in the 20th century one of the major ones was the russian revolution and people were trying to figure out where did sovereignty lie if everyone's equal what's going on there were some ideas that were coming from marx and communism where people were trying to play out how do we operate as a collective and from what i understand of that situation is that what was happening there was to create in groups and out groups it was to put groups against each other to have oppressors and oppressed to not see everyone as individuals that have their own individual self-worth but rather to see things as collectives and battles between collectives so it was group versus group and one of the books that i've read this year that really affected me was a book called the gulag archipelago which was written by alexander solzhenitsyn who lived through this period of time lived through the Russian revolutions. And there's a quote in that book that maybe some people already know about, but definitely really got me thinking because his journey was interesting because he was actually part of the communist movement, part of these ideas that were playing out in real time where people were trying to do things for the general will, the collective good. But eventually, through this whole in-group, out-group dynamic, he finds himself put in the gulags. The gulag and the gulag archipelago is literally a prison camp. The prison camps throughout Russia where political dissidents, religious dissidents would go to be locked up. And he had to go on a journey during that time and really question how he ended up in the situation that he ended up in, having supported the revolutions, having supported this movement of the collective general will. And eventually he comes upon his own realisation of what that fallen nature means at least that's my interpretation of this quote that i want to read which is that the line separating good and evil passes not through states nor between classes which were the collective groups at the time the classes were the in-group out groups that were fighting nor between political parties either but right through the human heart and this line shifts inside us and it oscillates the years and even within hearts overwhelmed by evil one small bridgehead of good is retained and even in the best of all hearts there remains an uprooted small corner of evil. The idea in Russia at the time is that that fallen capacity was externalized onto outgroups. There were people that were bad and there were people that were oppressed and there was a battle between them. But what he was saying in this is that actually it's within us that that battle is taking place. So our fallen nature is not to be externalized and projected onto others. It's to be internalized and realized that this is something that is within us. And if you think about it, if you have the mindset that you only see others as fallen, as inherently bad in some way, you automatically through that mindset create another there is someone other to you that is worse than you and through doing that the idea of the sanctity of the individual we deny in other people and i think the final thing i'd add to that is if you can internalize this nature and say look we all have the capacity within us for good and evil i think it's much more difficult for anyone to sit in moral judgment over others if you can understand that you yourself are flawed Let's explore that in a bit more depth. So if we were to take this idea of Imago Dei, that we're born in the image of God and that there is some spark of the divine 
within us and that through that we can create in the world. One way that some writers have talked about that is this idea that we are in some ways our own God. We have the power to create, we have the power to do good, we have the power to do evil and bad, which is another way of saying the line runs down the heart of every man. And it's been written about by many that with this idea that we have power We have power over others, we have power over the creatures, we have power of the world, and if we become more powerful, we have more power, and that power corrupts, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. So we know there's something in the human psyche that's attracted to the idea of power, and the realization of power is the enactment of power. So I come to comprehend and celebrate my own power when I use that power, because it becomes manifest. It's not an idea of power, it's real power being exercised. And that power could be used over others. And we know that the internal psychic forces that lead us to do things come from a position of care, benevolence, empathy, mercy, the desire to seek goodness for others and our potential contribution through our power to make that possible. But we can also see that there are other forces that operate within us, whether it's jealousy, envy, fear, resentment, which are motivational energies that call upon us or make the call upon us to exercise our power in potential ways that do harm to others. So our own internal psyche and the energies within it are motive forces that call upon us and can manifest in us enacting the power that we have to do harm to others and to the world, or in more religious language, to do evil. So we have the capacity to do bad and to do good. And there are probably at least two levels in which that gets framed. There's the one which is the looking deep into oneself to say, who am I really and what do I truly believe? My deepest reflections on my authentic sovereign self. What do I believe and what do I hold most valuable? What do I hold most sacred that would govern how I would act so that I can marshal and manage my own internal psyche in such a way that I am called upon and will act out the things that I hold most valuable and most sacred. Those could be good things or they could be quite evil things. So that's the arrangement and disposition orientation of the internal psyche. So that's at one level that the origin and the manifestation of evil could appear. The second level, which was particularly prevalent in the Russian Revolution, and one could even say in Nazi Germany as the other side of the coin, is this tendency we have, which is we are part of a group. And the way that we see ourselves, the way that we judge ourselves, the way we evaluate ourselves is often through the eyes of others, our participation in a relationship with others or relationship with a group. And when that group has an ideal or a set of expectations, and we feel called upon to show our loyalty to that group, that giving away of one's own sovereignty to the role that's called upon us to play to justify and authenticate our participation in the group can lead us to undertake actions that we normally wouldn't undertake. So whether it's the guard looking after Solzhenitsyn who would undertake cruelty because that's the role he was expected to take as a guard within a system that had a system of beliefs that he was part of, that he needed to demonstrate that he was fully sold into, meant that irrespective of what he really felt, 
his role called upon him to act out in a particular way. And what we see time and time again is that groups can have ideologies. Ideologies often are a worldview that can be quite constrained and narrow. It sees some aspect of reality as more sacred than any other, and that the behaviours required to elicit and sustain and participate in the group that holds these particular values most sacred calls upon a certain part of our personality or certain set of behaviours to manifest itself. And whether we find ourselves members of the Communist Party or the Nazi Party, the propensity to be called or pulled into doing evil in pursuit of the participation in that group and what it calls from you can often call people to do things they normally otherwise wouldn't. And there's a super interesting question for us, which is the awareness that to participate in a particular ideology or group that calls upon us to behave in a certain way Do we sell ourselves into the service of what the group expects of us and abandon our own sovereignty and what is most sacred to gain the benefit of participating? Or do we seek to understand what we truly believe and what truly comes from a sovereign place in ourselves and refuse to partake in things that call upon us to do that which is bad or evil? I think there's two levels in which we could be evil and I hope we've done justice to calling those out. Let's wrap up what it means to be an individual from the perspective of the legacy mindset conversation, this idea of what have we inherited, what's the water that we're swimming in, or or what has been, and how has that changed over time? We've got to this point with exploring the fallen nature, this idea that we create in-groups and out-groups, which completely contradicts the understanding of the intrinsic value and worth of every individual as the base unit for organizing society. We tend to continually fall into this way of seeing the world, or that at least we can say that there's constantly instances of in-groups and out-groups being made and catastrophe playing out as a result of that. But why have we spent so much time talking about the sanctity of the individual and the understanding of what it means to be an individual based on the narratives that have been told throughout time, throughout history, especially from the Western point of view? Well, I guess the way that it looks to me when you've got this idea of the Imago Dei and you've got the idea of our fallen nature, the other thing that the Christian story put into the understanding of the fallen nature is also that humanity is redeemed through the grace of God, that there is a path forwards to redemption. So all of these ideas, they have been absorbed into our world, have transformed our society and still reverberate in our arena today. The idea that through the eyes of our own individuality, we can see others as individual is really, really important. And how we relate to ourselves, each other and the world around us from this mindset here is this kind of divine balance between the Imago Dei, us being created in the image of God and our fallen nature, recognizing that in ourselves as well as others, like this idea that we aren't able to fully realize and live up to the ideals we set ourselves. So that juxtaposition, that union of opposites, constructs the individual psyche, but also gives us a compass by which we can navigate relationships and the world. Because if you treat someone else as having intrinsic worth, as being made in the image of God, regardless of the the metaphysical aspect of that, if you treat someone as if that's true, you treat them with intrinsic dignity, value, respect, and worth. At the same time, if we recognize that in ourselves we are fallen, and that also extends to other people, that we cannot continually live up to the ideals we set ourselves, that is a pathway towards humility, forgiveness, and compassion. And it's only with those two things in unison, in unity, 
Think of the yin-yang image or what Solzhenitsyn was saying about the line running through each heart. It's only through that comprehension that we can, at least in my opinion, we can act and relate to the world and to each other. So I think that that understanding, that kernel of how we see ourselves and each other is a really useful heuristic for how we can operate in the world today. And it can be a compass by which we can navigate the world if we internalize this understanding and project it out onto others, regardless of the metaphysical nature of it, just from a purely pragmatic point of view. If you act as if these things are true and treat people with dignity and also have the ability to treat them with compassion, that's something that we can take from this discussion and use as a compass by which we can navigate a very uncertain world, always trying to avoid the trap of being in an in-group, falling into a tribe, falling into something that is directly opposed to an out-group. That's a very rich summation. I think one thing I'll just add to that is one way of thinking about the Christian story is that it just appeared out of nowhere. It was just revealed and there was a call to adopt it as a sort of divine light shining out of the darkness. And there's one way that this could be thought of in those terms. But there's another way which Jordan Peterson has been developing, which I think for me has been a really interesting way of arriving at these truths. So he's been talking a lot about that through the hundreds of thousands of years that humans have existed, we've told each other stories as a means of communicating information to each other and intergenerationally we hand down the stories. And those stories are of things that happened, of things that went badly, things that went well, and that we elaborate those. And as stories get evolved over many generations, the things that are most true become the essence of the stories. As we meet different tribes and we form greater civilizations, those stories get passed together and become the truth of those, gets distilled into the stories that can last because they have some eternal truths in them. And that the myths that then became the religions that then evolved into the Abrahamic faiths have within them an element of divine revelation, but they're also the most true truths that we've learnt from our civilizational history about what works and what doesn't are incorporated and embedded in this. So there's also deep psychological truths that have made it through the centuries, through the millennia, that are revealed in many of our religious texts, which speaks to the eternal truths of human nature and the human psyche as well. So there is a way of thinking about these stories, which is the distillation of the truth of history revealed. And therefore, there's something absolutely foundational about humanity and human psyche revealed in these stories. And these texts, they're not even just stories, these texts that should be thought about with some degree of deep thought and reverence, even if one isn't a Christian or of a religious disposition. I think the other thing that's interesting to put into the mix here is you talk about the union of opposites, that because of the fallen nature of us, we will make mistakes. So the idea of humility, forgiveness and mercy is baked in. We're in a struggle that we need to continue to evolve and develop. And we can't have universal condemnation of making one mistake, the idea of purity, make one error and then you're condemned to go to hell. That doesn't square with the idea that we are always less than perfect. We're always going to make mistakes. The most important thing is, are we orienting towards the good in our struggle so that we can be forgiven and we can learn from our mistakes 
and we're in a process of becoming where the becoming is better than what we are now. And in our modern world, we've crafted out from our institutional structures we've been discovering and discussing this idea of rights afforded to individuals. Their rights are giving people freedoms freedoms to choose, to choose the life, to choose the way to be. So there's also a responsibility and an orientation to what choices do we make in service of becoming someone better, of in those choices, seeing others in the way that you described with honor, dignity and compassion. So the choices I can make contribute to the greater well-being of others that I care about and ultimately to the world itself. Freedoms bring responsibilities. We can't just have freedoms if we don't know how to use the freedom. So freedoms bring responsibilities. They create a space for us to act out our agency, our autonomy and our sovereignty in service of becoming something and someone better. And this is a challenge for ourselves in this age where we're not quite sure what becoming better actually means. So as I think we may go on to discuss, what is that journey of becoming? How do we orient ourselves and our life project in a world that's calling us to be in ways that may not represent our individual and collective flourishing? There's a call for the greater analysis of our own agency and sovereignty so we can orientate ourselves in the right way to the world and to the pursuit of our own lives. So that's the end of another episode, episode eight, our longest one to date. We covered a lot of ground in this one, and there's plenty to continue exploring, thinking about, and reading over. If you want to dive deeper on this subject, jump on the podcast show notes or on our website, metaperspective.io, for links to the things we discussed. But what to say about that episode? Well, firstly, it was recorded a while back, in the summer of 2021. And with all the time that's passed, the thing that continues to stand out to me is this concept of the waters we're swimming in. 2,000 years ago, a series of extraordinary events occurred that turned established power dynamics on their head as they rippled out and unfolded over time. And we began to wrestle with what it meant to have intrinsic value as conscious moral agents. And as we wrestled, we won more of our rights and freedoms over the course of empires crumbling, wars being fought, contracts being negotiated and defined, and the convulsions of revolutions, protestations and philosophical thought, we came to terms with the fact that we all have intrinsic value and that we could structure our societies around the sanctity of the individual. These things that happened over the course of millennia have shaped our world so profoundly and universally that it's hard for us to even recognise the roots of it we don't notice the water we're swimming in. And it makes me think, what else is out there that we don't fully comprehend, tucked away in the operating source code of the world around us? At the beginning of this episode, I said we had to take a step back and look at our understanding of the self before we could go forwards. So the questions I want to leave you with to ponder over until the next episode are, Do you think we still hold a sense of individuality as sacred in modern society? Whilst always bearing in mind that at the same time we are fallen far from perfect creatures, how would your life change if you were to treat yourself 
and others as if their lives were so? How would your decisions change? How would your actions change if you considered yourself and others conscious moral agents participating in the arena? And could we strengthen the nodes on the network by fully adopting and internalising this mindset? As always, if you want to support the show, the best way is to subscribe and share episodes that you're enjoying with friends. And of course, let us know what you think. Email us at hello at metaperspective.io. We'd love to hear from you. Anyway, let's conclude the show. Thank you for your time and attention. And until the next time, take care.